0: Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. I'm excited for you to be joining me. I am glad you're here. This is a very special day for me. This is my 100th episode of my podcast. Hard to believe, 100 episodes. And not only that, but it happens to be coming right around the three-year mark of this podcast. First episode of the podcast aired in May, May 14th to be specific, of 2020. And now here we are three years later, still doing this thing. I haven't even mentioned the best part, by the way. Not only is it 100 episodes, but Nick Offerman is my guest. Second time he's been on the show. I am really excited for that conversation, and uh, I'm glad you're here for it. This is going to be a good day. If you're interested in kind of just the whole background of this podcast, let me just tell you real quick. I wrote a whole thing about it on Sunday uh, in the newsletter. Go to heathrisala.com slash newsletter. And you can read that piece there. But basically, the the short version that I'll tell you here, because you're listening and we're chatting, but if you want to read the whole thing, go check out the newsletter. I was an unemployed TV producer. I lost my longtime producing job right at the start of the pandemic, literally like two or three days before the shutdown. And kind of when everything shut down, a lot of TV work went dark right away. But then as kind of the spring was was progressing on, and we were all still mostly in quarantine, but there was a push to try to get some new content made. And so people like The Daily Show and Trevor Noah were starting to record content from home, Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert. All these people started broadcasting episodes from their house. There was a Parks and Rec special that Nick was a part of. We talked about it the last time he was on the podcast. And I was sitting there watching all this stuff and saying, oh my God, I'm missing all of it. Like I'm going to get rehired for some job at some point down the road. And I'm not going to know anything about how remote production works. I'm not going to know the tools. I'm not going to know the terminology. I'm going to look like a dinosaur talking about live action work (laughs) that I was doing, you know, three months earlier or whatever. But in my head, it was like, oh, no, I'm completely out of the game. I've got to do something about this. And realizing, too, that all of my friends and colleagues and, you know, all my peers, We're also in the same boat, whether you were the best director of photography in Boston or the best audio tech or whatever it was, you were also for the most part out of work. That was kind of the plan was like, I'll do a show for my friends featuring my friends. It ended up being much bigger. And I go into that in the newsletter of kind of how it it became what it did and why I continue it. But yeah, I, uh, I rebranded to Willoughby Hills for both the podcast and the newsletter at the beginning of 2023 and that has been a nicer fit for me. It has allowed me to explore stories and to talk about things that maybe didn't fit strictly within the idea of COVID. It allows me to talk to guests and and talk about ideas that are separate from entertainment and media which I really love. And it allows me to revisit some past guests and talk to them through a different lens, which is part of what's happening today. So as I said, Nick has been here before. He was on episode 8 of this podcast way back in the beginning. And uh, at the time, we talked a lot about the pandemic and the quarantine. And then the conversation ended up going into a direction talking about, you know, growing our own food and, and things that I kind of knew mattered to Nick. And I certainly knew mattered to me, but it was not things that we had ever talked about before. It was a great conversation. Again, go back and listen to it. It's episode eight in your podcast app. And Nick and I have stayed in touch since he was on the podcast the first time, I mean, I knew him through this old house. We'd met a few times even before he was on the podcast and he turned me on to the writings of Wendell Berry, amazing agrarian author uh, out of Kentucky that writes about farming largely. Uh, He writes fiction, he writes poetry, he writes essays, but it's kind of about how if we fix our farms, we can fix the planet. And it's just, it's beautiful stuff Nick has been talking about Wendell for a long time in his writing, and I finally reached out to Nick if maybe a year or so ago and just said, I want to get started. Where should I go? And he gave me some great recommendations, and I'm hooked now. But I had some questions for Nick too, because Wendell is this, you know, he's, he's an older guy. He's in his 80s, and he almost lives an Amish existence when you read his work. Not quite that extreme. I mean, he has electricity and stuff, but He is very big on on using horsepower over tractor power. I mean, literally like a horse, you know, pulling a plow and things like that. And just he questions a lot of things about the modern world that I think he's spot on about, frankly. But Nick and I both make our living through the entertainment industry. And it's kind of hard for me sometimes as I'm reading Wendell Berry's work and nodding along and saying, yes, yes, this makes sense to say, why Am I doing the thing I'm doing? Should I just, you know, <laughs> sell out and and buy a farm somewhere and live a little self-sufficient life and forget the modern world? I don't know. That's the stuff I think about when I read Wendell Berry. And I know Nick's been a student of his for a long time and uh, has met and chatted with Wendell Berry a lot. So I knew he would have a perspective on that. So we talk a lot about Wendell Berry in this. We also talk a lot about how Nick selects the projects that he works on. And it's interesting like we talked maybe 2 or 3 weeks ago and it's interesting to hear Nick talk about how important the writing is to what he does. You'll hear him say that he selects his projects based solely on the script. And with that context, I think it's it's interesting to think about what's happening in Hollywood right now with the writers strike and you know the Writers Guild of America, the WGA is on strike asking for what I think to most people in entertainment seem like reasonable benefits. So I'm not a writer, so I'm not exactly privy to to every nuance of this discussion. But as I understand it, when streaming started, streaming is is in a different category than other television. And so a lot of these writers ended up working on streaming shows that paid less and that produced less episodes. So if when you're paid on a per episode basis, you end up making a lot less money at the end of the year. And I think it's clear from what Nick is saying in this conversation that without good writing none of the rest of the pieces can fall into place. Like it all starts there. It starts with what's in the script. So that's the blueprint. Like it's like you can't build a house without a blueprint. You can't build a movie without a script. And so I think it's just it's important to keep that piece in mind. Just as you're listening to this, think about how Nick talks about writing. And not to belabor the point, but Nick and I are also going to talk in this conversation some about commercialism and corporatization and just kind of what happens when you go from being really small to really big. And I think Wendell Berry writes a lot about having kind of local values and being able to do business with your neighbors and things like that. And the Hollywood system is just like any other big industry that we have. The more that you concentrate power the more that power and wealth seem to flow to the very top of the pyramid and uh, the less that is there for other people. So I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in that. Take a listen to the interview. See if you pick up on that as well. And uh, one last thing that I want to let you know, too, Nick is out on tour right now with his comedy show. We're going to start the interview by talking about that. But this month, he is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's in Fort Yates, North Dakota. He's in Oxon Hill, Maryland. And he's in Cherokee, North Carolina. And then if he happen to be across the pond, he will be in Ireland and the UK throughout June and uh, into July as well. And he's got a date up in Calgary in August. So go see his live show. I saw it when he was in Connecticut a few weeks ago, and I wrote about that in the newsletter as well. All right, here it is. My second conversation with Nick Offerman. I'm curious. First of all, like, this is the second time I've seen you live, and I saw you know American Ham on Netflix. But they're not quite stand-up specials. They're you know they're, there's comedy in there, but there's variety, there's music. Like, what do you tell people that you do on stage? How do you how do you qualify those shows?
1: Well, it's a good question. I mean, I I I definitely aim to make people laugh, and am. Um, Relatively successful at it, the audience, you know, generally has has a lot of laughs at my show, which is usually about ninety minutes long. Um, but you're right; I'm certainly not a joke writer, and it's not just a patter of of jokes one after the other or or anecdotes that are that are fabricated just to make people laugh. There's also uh, a lot of broccoli being snuck into the pizza, as it were, <laughs> sure, it's tricky. i don't I don't have a great elevator one liner uh, like an elevator pitch to to say, Here's my bag. but I find that calling myself a humorist helps because people say, Oh, what is that? And I say, well, it's it's like a comedian, but I talk slower. Um, <laughs> and i'm not I'm not required to be as funny. yeah, I you know, when I started out, I called myself a a less educated. Uh, Garrison Keeler aspirant, sure. So uh, you know, and and it's I feel bad because when one that special American Ham used to be on Netflix. It's funny. I'm, I'm usually relatively unaware that things even have rev- like reviews from commenters online. Like yeah. I don't know who has time to scrutinize all that stuff but i uh, some came my way at some point uh, and people were you know rightly saying because they would just go through all the stand-up specials on netflix and check them off and then they'd get to (laughs) this weird agrarian guy you know that was like have you thought about where your food comes from and they're like man this isn't a stand-up special this guy sucks (laughs) and i couldn't disagree with them. I felt bad, you know, that, that uh, a, a corporate entity like Netflix just dumped me in with joke tellers. You know, I uh, I feel like by now my audience generally has a pretty good idea of what I'm about and that they are generally likely to have a very fun time and laugh a lot. But there are always a few people still in the dark who somehow think, they're going to, I don't know what they think. They're going to get an evening of like Ron Swanson talking about shotgun shells or something <laughs> where they're like, "What? this is bullshit, you know, and they leave in a huff. And I'm like, huh? I don't know, uh, read, read the paper sometime.
0: But I guess like that point of like, you could just do an hour about bacon and woodwork joinery and whatever, and, and people I think would eat it up but your point about, you know, serving broccoli with the pizza, like you do kind of challenge the audience and get them to think differently or or hopefully bring some new ideas forward. Like what, what is it that makes you want to take that approach?
1: Well, probably, uh, you know, first and foremost, I'm not that funny. If I was, <laughs> if I was a very, if I was a talented comedian, I would just tell jokes. Uh, but I don't seem to have that skill. And so uh, I don't know. There's something about it. I, I'm a theater actor by training, and and that's what I did for all through my 20s before moving to Los Angeles. I, I was in Chicago. And then I started working as well in, in film and TV. And uh, as, as most people know, uh, I have a woodworking shop. And so those, those were kind of my things. And then uh, only through the anomalous success of the sort of winning lottery ticket of Parks and Recreation – and that great character that was created, you know, that, that I got to help create, um, the, then the world said, hey, uh, would you like to come to your stand-up at our college? And I said, oh, I don't do that. I'm, I'm a theater actor. And uh, after, after a few requests, it occurred to me that I would actually really like to talk to 2,000 young people. Um And it also pays really well. And, and so I started writing material. I started cobbling together songs. And it just, uh, it, you know, I said, well, this is a kind of a great opportunity that I don't want to just not take advantage of. And so a humorist was born. <laughs> and because of the opportunity, like, you know, people will show up to let me talk on stage for an evening And so, uh, like I said, I I don't have a book full of jokes like some of my friends. And so, uh, I like to ask the audience questions, uh, but I'm kind of asking those questions of myself. Hmm. And I use, I use it as a homework project to say, well, you know, uh, what do I, what have I learned from my teachers that I could pass along? And also in what areas do I think I'm failing or, you know, can I be doing better? Uh, and see if I can, you know, make people laugh talking about that.
0: So when you're coming up with material, like how much of it is you get to a point where you have something to say and you're like, I want to go out and, and say this and how much is, Oh, I've got a show booked. <laughs> I've got to, have got to write some material. Like, are you, are you more deadline driven or are you more, I've got this idea. Let me find the space to, to tell it.
1: I, I mean, I would say very much deadline driven, Okay. Uh, in with all of my writing, uh, my books. I, I write a column right now for Outside Magazine as well, and it's it's all deadline. Like I, it, I I think I organically compile subject matter. You know, I I pay attention to the news as best I can, and between that and like what's going on in Los Angeles or California in general or America or my hometown of Manuka, Illinois. I, I, I sort of took these, you know, I'm like, okay, there, there's a crooked uh, politician, you know, and I, that goes in the file so that then I'm, I'm writing my, my column or I'm working on my new book. And I think, Oh, what was that thing about that crooked politician? And so I, I think my circus act, uh, Which I just I always feel like I'm keeping seven or eight plates spinning in the circus. Sure, that doesn't really leave me a lot of uh, room for rumination, uh, where where I'm like, oh, you know, the state of the world is such that I'm gonna put out an. I need time to meet a time for me to crank out a new album. Instead, uh, people are like, hey, we we uh, have an album festival coming up, and we we'd (laughs) love for you to be one of the people. And I'm like, great. Uh, so, you know, by and large, it's. Uh, I, I wish I could, you know, claim to be some sort of uh, wizard sitting in a cave, <laughs> like <laughs> c- embroidering uh, things to think about. But it, it's much more like I found myself in a position where I get to generate content uh, across a few different genres and media uh, or mediums. Um, I'm not sure which is the right usage there. Yeah, I don't know. But you know, I, I I'm just grateful that that uh I continue to find things to talk about.
0: Yeah, I and mean, it's funny. Just you hit on something that I interviewed somebody on Wednesday as well, and um, it's actually a cousin of mine who's a photographer who takes beautiful landscape pictures all throughout Cleveland. And we got to the end of the call, and he said, "Wow, like." that was really fun. We should just talk on the phone sometimes. And I was like, we should, but it's nice to have a podcast to kind of schedule that. Like, I think that's kind of what you're saying is like, you don't have the time always to think, but if you work that into your schedule and just book that time that I have to write this show or this book or this article, that's your thinking time.
1: Yeah. That's, I mean, that's really kind of boiling it down pretty astutely. Uh, And it reminds me, I mean, ever since I've been lucky enough to become a professional actor, And and Megan says the same thing, my wife. um, That uh, when you're lucky enough to work, it becomes a a pretty intense and isolating thing. Where you, you know, sometimes you'll uh, go to Canada for three months, or you'll go to on tour to Australia or New Zealand. And so your your home community or your friends uh, and family, you might not see them for long stretches of time. You don't have a reg. It's one of the things you don't have a regular routine like like many people do and so we we came to understand and and sort of laughingly say to this day that the only way we see our friends is by getting cast in a movie with them (laughs) yeah uh if you want to hang out with people you have to get on a tv show together (laughs) and and the same thing is true uh i think like uh my shop is is in los angeles it's offermanwoodshop.com I usually keep four, five, or six employees healthily cranking out custom furniture and sundry items. We have some incredible woodworkers there now who have been working on their mastery for years. And so they've begun making furniture that I couldn't even make yeah. because I'm dancing around the country you know, performing and doing podcasts with deep thinkers and things <laughs> like that. And so I uh, said the same goes with my shop. Uh this year I'm working on a a family woodworking book. Oh, nice. And part of that is uh, because I love it and and um in discussions with my publisher and editor, you know, what what book should what should the next book be? I'm always pitching woodworking books and part of the reason is because then I will be required to spend <laughs> a bunch of time in my shop. Yeah. Which otherwise I have a really hard time getting on the books. So, um and so so when you boil down what we're talking about, I think it's it's a great sort of uh adult uh idiom that, you know, if you want to get it done, if you want to if you want to learn to play the piano, you got to put it on the calendar because I, I I'm very industrious. Uh, some might say too <laughs> I love work too much, but I find I think that that's healthy I, I I always say when people talk to me about my wood shop, I say, "Well, it keeps me out of the pub." and we <laughs> laugh, but uh, but it's kind of true. Like it's part of my discipline is to have things on my calendar to keep me productive so that I'm making things. Instead of destroying things, I find Mm. that if I don't have projects of all all sorts, then I do want to go to the pub too much. Or I'm more likely to consume and destroy resources rather than hopefully create uh, products and content and and medicine Mm. for my audience. So if you want to get it done, you got to put it on the calendar. So
0: on that point, like this idea of putting things on your calendar, though, I mean, you have the luxury of having a book to write or, you know, uh, there's money exchanging hands and it makes sense to, to make that space. If you are, you know, an accountant or whatever, just somebody, you know, with kind of a, a nine to five, do you have advice for just putting that, you know, piano lessons or whatever on your calendar if there's not some way to justify it?
1: Yes, I absolutely do. Uh, because for many years, I didn't have the luxuries of any of these jobs sure i I was a theater actor i was broke you know living at a at a poverty level i I didn't know this lesson that i'm now trying to impart in hindsight but uh, i was driven to make things Mm. and uh, at some point it occurred to me that i wanted to make things even though somebody wasn't paying me to make them and so that is what really began to develop my woodworking practice and the best example I can think of is as I taught myself woodworking and used Fine Woodworking magazine and uh, you know other resources, uh, I, I learned different styles of furniture, types of, of uh, fine joinery, and eventually you get to the point where you've kind of mastered everything, all the ways you can make a table, as right. it were, and uh, you you need to step up into more meticulous or organic uh, shapes, or more persnickety uh, techniques like marquetry, or you know, you get into the world of gingerbread woodworking. And for me, what really appealed to me was boat building.
0: Mm, sure.
1: And so, for for years, I, I was I was studying obsessively uh, canoe building books and boat building literature, and and a wooden boat magazine is incredible. Until I built my first canoe, and so my advice is just my my greatest life advice, which we've talked about a lot, is I, I think everyone can make something. I think everyone has an inherent talent with these prehensile uh, opposable thumbs that we have and and this this incredible human ingenuity to attach our consciousness to our hands, the the coordination that we possess. And I know, you know, obviously some people can play the piano and some people become boxers and massage artists uh, and exotic dancers. Uh, Some of us are lucky enough to possess all of those skills and love making. You should never forget that you can be paid an honest wage for for (laughs) making love. But, you know, but seriously, I think that everyone uh, is able to make something. And I encourage people to trying to figure out what that is because that is what you can do and it will make your time go by so happily and often productively rather than saying I'm so bored what should I do well, I guess I should succumb to all these channels blaring at me I should you know uh, consume I should consume all of the the corporate materials that I that I see on every billboard every everywhere I turn and instead dig into one's own organic sensibilities and find out what you love to do that you don't have to pay a bunch of money to do
0: sure and i think on that point like just on the boat building i don't mean to to reduce that i mean you you know your experience better than me but w- when i talked to jimmy duresta um he sort of gave me his version of how that all went down and like as i understand it you just wanted to build a boat like it wasn't it wasn't a paid commission or anything. It was just something that was inside of you and it ended up becoming a DVD and a book. And, you know, like a whole, a whole thing was born from just wanting to, to do that. Like, I guess w- what I'm trying to say is seek it out for its own sake and the rewards may follow.
1: Yeah. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> boiling the paragraph or three that I just gave you down into a, a very succinct sentence. But yeah, that's the idea. Is we've been taught to think um, that things aren't worth doing if we can't get paid to do them. Right. And and what I would say is there are, are much better forms of recompense than dollars. And and I think that you'll find, you know, you'll find maybe it's knitting, maybe it's baking, maybe it's making kids laugh or re- reading them stories, or maybe it's walking dogs. All of these. things things can can be incredibly lucrative whether or not they're paying you an income.
0: Yeah. I want to ask, um, because it's something that I wrestle with as someone in the you know TV and, and media space, like Wendell Berry, obviously we've we've talked about off this podcast, but um you've been a fan of his for a long time. You got me into him and you know, through your books and then um through your newsletter uh, had kind of suggested some some places to start. I've been reading him, and, and and I'm just floored. But kind of the the challenge that I come up with is I see the distraction in media, in phones, all this, but it's also where I make my living. Whether it's making TV shows or <laughs> writing a newsletter that's on a phone, or you know whatever it is, podcasts that people have to listen to. Like, how do you kind of reconcile that piece of you're paid to do a consumerist thing, but you you have this kind of anti-consumerist bend, too, which which I share with you, and I guess I'm asking because I struggle with it myself.
1: Sure, uh, I mean life is complicated, and any <laughs> right. human and any human endeavor requires a, a great deal of nuance before we we leap to judging it. Uh, but it's something I've thought about a great deal, especially when talking about Wendell Berry, because I'm usually t- talking about <laughs> him. On a TV channel or a pod, you know, through some sort of broadcast medium, and the way I've come to think about it is, I, I think about it uh, as an author of books, mm-hmm. and when I write a book about uh, our national parks or uh, about the way uh, we treat our our farmers in this country today, uh, and then I and then I go to promote that book. I feel about all of my work the same way. I don't need to apologize for any of the other books that might be available to you. I've written a book about something I'm passionate about, and I hope you will read it and like it, mm-hmm. but there, there's a lot of books that are probably garbage, and I don't recommend, I hope you don't read those. <laughs> and the same goes for all the things I choose to work on, that I'm not trying to sell you uh popular culture. I'm not trying to I'm not creating bubble gum or anything flashy. I choose my projects singularly by reading the script and I say, "I think this writing is incredible. I want to be a part of it. Is it a I have a big part, I have a little part. The people working on it, I love for any number of reasons. I want to work with these people. I want to collaborate with this group." to tell this story about Colin Kaepernick and the way he grew up with his adopted family in central California. You know, this is so meaningful to me. And so I will promote that on Netflix or, or what have you. And I, and I'm not asking you to like become a couch potato or, or any sort of, uh, any sort of sedentary human. And, and, And I, and I, would say the f- same thing to myself which is like seek out the content of quality uh, watch that and that's a, you know it's a portion of the meal of your day mm. I spend most of my day doing my work i pay attention to my relationships and my household and my, you know my my neighbors and everybody has their apportioned piece of the of the Venn di- diagram where things cross over you know, what, what gets color coded. It's the reason I, I played my last video game in the nineties and was like, you know what? I don't, I don't want to give this any more
0: yeah.
1: uh, of my pie. I understand that people, you know, love it and, and do a lot of it, but I also understand that a lot of people it's, it's very addictive and that, and I could feel that in myself. That's why I stopped is because I could feel the the danger that it could, it could consume to with my indulgent personality, too much of my, of my pie graph. And and so that's that's how I reconcile it is is sincerely uh I understand that it sounds funny but I would say to my audience watch my stuff and and that's it. <laughs> it's a, it's all you need. Maybe um, some of
0: Megan's work too. But Of
1: course. I, I mean I, I mean in the, in the in the most solipsistic form that like it's like I I make this stuff and I hope you'll watch it, but don't throw your life away watching television. Yeah, and as all things, like I I I love uh, pork cracklings, chicharrones, but I need I know I need to eat a lot of other foodstuffs as well.
0: Right, and I guess you talk about the the Kaepernick piece that you were in, or you know, The Last of Us. Like there is a place, and this is something I have to remind myself too: where TV, film, whatever can be educational, can be moving, can get us to, you know, rise to a place of activism in a way that that other things maybe can't or or aren't as immediate sometimes.
1: Sure. I mean, there's no putting the toothpaste back in the tube. I think I would come down on the cultural side of curmudgeonism. Like if I could pick, I I would take us all back to, like, I would say you can only read books or see people live on stage. Like if, if I if I could snap my fingers and do that, I think I would do it. I yeah. I understand the the purity uh, of that. And in uh, uh, the sense of of Wendell Berry philosophy, I think it would be healthy for humanity and it would be healthy for our planet and our civilization. That unfortunately is not the case and so I, you know, I I try to find uh, a healthy balance with the way I deliver uh, the stories that I tell. I mean, one way or another, human beings seem to require stories. Religion is all stories. Uh, the, The way we live, you know, every day, we're all putting on masks for each other. I tell you a different story when I see you at the gas station versus when I, you know, see you at the nightclub uh, with who I am and how my day is going and, and what my objectives are. We're all telling stories all the time. Some of us do it to a crowd. Some of us do it in this form and uh, in an investigative way. And this happens to be the, de- the delivery system. And I, I don't have a big enough brain on me to weigh in on the pros and cons of the delivery system. Yeah. I can make my living performing you know scripts that smart people have written. And, you know, generally I try to find uh, versions of that that are medicinal in some way, whether it's just stupid making people laugh or, uh, you know, incredibly gripping drama or and everything in between. And there will always be such debates, you know, when we're like wearing our weird uh, implant chip glasses and watching feature films six inches in front of our face projected onto the mist in the air, you know. There, yeah. Then uh, Spielberg's grandson will will r- write a screed in the New York Times about how this is not better than Google Glasses, or <laughs> it's you know what I right. mean. There's it's always going to be uh, the old way is better, the new way is better. I, for me, I you know the fact that there's a percentage of our population that's obsessed with going into outer space. Now, I I love science. I think it's fascinating, and I absolutely understand the value of what we can learn scientifically from uh, the environment outside of Earth's atmosphere and other planets and the universe. Absolutely, 100%. Uh, but it's the people that want to like just build rockets and are like, yes, put, count me in.
0: Yeah.
1: I want to ride a rocket uh, above the atmosphere and pay, you know, the the price of like an elementary school. <laughs> I'm just like I just I just don't get that. I I think that that's a weird distraction. And so, you know, uh, that's me. That's, that's my predilection. I, I uh, respect everyone's prerogatives as long as they're not hurting each other uh or themselves or other people's property, but nonetheless, uh I definitely raise my eyebrow at a lot of things.
0: Yeah. Well, I feel like a lot of that may come from Wendell Berry and that's something that it's interesting like so I had sent you a note a year or so ago and was just asking, "Hey, I want to get into this, like where should I start?" and I was expecting maybe like, you know, read this book and you did a, a maybe 10-minute video on your newsletter at the time of like, here's great poetry, here's great um uh, short stories, here's great uh, essays like there's all different entry points. I ended up going through the nonfiction work, but like what was sort of your first introduction to Wendell Berry and why has that remained such a constant for you?
1: In in the mid nineties, I was doing a play at the Steppenwolf theater in Chicago and what uh, one of my fellow actors, a guy named Leo Burmester, who sadly is no longer with us. He was an actor from Kentucky and he uh, saw something in me um you know we 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 weren't besties uh we were new acquaintances and he was maybe 20 years older than me and he gave me a couple books of Wendell berry short stories specifically a book called fidelity and a book called watch with me mm. i think i think i think that's what the second collection's called i just was blown away because the reason Wendell's work and philosophy speaks, I think, so strongly to me is because he is uh, calling out and revering a set of values and a a sort of commonsensical, pragmatic, self-sufficient way of life that I was taught by my family. And so this idea, even though I live in Los Angeles, you know, in in the middle of a crazy urban sprawl full of traffic and pollution and you know all kinds of human skull duggery but also absolute glory it's the headquarters of creativity in our country and and one of the you know places in the world where like the the greatest uh, advanced you know progressive thinking is happening and you know uh, we all are we all contribute to both sides of the equation yeah Ideally, I mean, you know, sometimes I'm just making rubbish, but but hopefully once in a while, you know, I get to add to the song of of progress and evolution, or or at least like make a sandwich for my my incredible wife while she leads the chorus. Yeah. Uh, that's what it comes down to, and and why the writing and the vision of of Wendell Berry uh, will just. I think continue to be my greatest teacher uh, and, and it's why I just encourage every, I don't, I, I wish it was required reading for, uh, for every school kid um, because it's just common sense values that, uh, that will help everyone. And it, and it's funny the the best way I can boil it down is, is that when Wendell uh, measuredly talks about any problem or he attacks any question, by and large, the, the solution that he comes to is love, hmm. and uh, I was talking with a friend uh, the other day about this. That th- think about that. How many leaders in our world, you know, uh, how many politicians or, or thinkers that that are that we come across in media say, well, you know, these Tennessee lawmakers who expelled the two black guys, but not the white lady, yeah. because they protested. Uh, for, you know for for common sense gun regulation well the, this stems from the problem that these people are not loving each other that this community is is failing to love one another uh, they're failing to pay attention to their purported Christian ideals in this specific way they are not loving each other their communities the planet you know their their landscapes they're not loving it enough uh on on my I don't know, one of my social media things where you have a quote in your bio, mine is a Wendell Berry quote, and it's simply it all turns on affection. Hmm. And and it's really I mean I could I could talk for a blue streak for a week about <laughs> Wendell Berry's work, but it all comes down to that. Yeah. That that forces, you know, human forces, greed and power and avarice Drive us to focus on things other than love, and you know we all succumb to that to whatever extent we do. Part of the the work I try to do is remind us all, thanks to Wendell and and other incredible women and men whose whose writing has shaped my life, and say, but don't forget about love. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's, that's it's 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 a great uh, it's a great relief to yeah. to remember that for me because it, it simplifies everything uh, very much.
0: What you're describing there to me, it's interesting. Like when I was reading uh, The Unsettling of America is where I started and it was mind opening and mind blowing, but it was also very familiar. I think maybe in part because of your work in part, you know, he influenced Michael Pollan a lot. Um, I, I read uh, your blurb about Wendell Berry and gumption again uh, before this talk. And uh, you mentioned that Mike Schur was, was really influenced by Wendell Berry as well, because it ju- to me, I think it, what you're describing is kind of the ethos of, of Parks and Rec and the Good Place, too, of just, like, be decent to each other, find the people you love being with, and spend as much time as you can with them.
1: That's it. That's it.
0: And it, it kind of all goes back to Wendell Berry, too, which is funny.
1: Well, it does, but Wendell would would say, no, hang on. Uh, you should <laughs> uh, Let me tell you about a guy named Shakespeare. Yeah. And and let me tell you about Paul's you know third letter to the Ephesians. Like I, I was um, I was having lunch a few weeks ago with the Berries and and Wendell quoted a a full like stanza a full like half page of a monologue from Macbeth. <laughs> wow. And I just you know I said well. That's why I drove here. That's why I (laughs) came to your house and you didn't come to my house. But yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, we we all have our our weaknesses and and the forces of consumerism these days play on those. You know, they, they exploit those and try to get us to spend our money and our time on things we don't need. And Wendell and Mike Schur and Shakespeare and everybody else uh, remind us that there are much better and less destructive and expensive ways to spend our time and money.
0: Yeah. It's interesting too because I felt like in reading that something that's kind of underneath all of his work is this idea that everything is kind of connected and that and you touched on this uh in your stage show that like if we can fix our farms we can kind of fix everything, you know, global warming goes away our healthcare issues, you know, diabetes, obesity, uh commercialism, overconsumption, the way that we use our land, like it it kind of and maybe this is just the lens that I'm viewing the world through, but to me it makes sense to say, oh yeah, fix the farms. It's not all these disparate problems. It's it's kind of one thing that like you flip that switch, it takes care of a lot of other things.
1: Uh, it it's true. I mean, it, it... You know, I, I don't want to be too idyllic about it, but it will solve a great many problems. It, you know, there will still be a myriad of of colors of athletic shoes we can purchase or or incredible new fast food cheeseburgers to buy. And I, for one, will be tempted to to purchase them, but it definitely would solve a great many substantial problems of infrastructure that we face. I love Wendell's address of that issue, which is that our tendency is to always think a bigger, shinier thing will will solve the problem. Well, our technology has caused this problem or this pollution or, or ruined this river. What we need is a bigger technology, as, as though we will ever have a technology that doesn't create... <laughs> an imbalance and more pollution and more waste and and more destruction um sure i'm very grateful for that that simple understanding and it it goes back to what you said and and uh wendell besides shakespeare and the bible would also talk about aldo leopold and he's you know one one of our uh, agrarian legends in this country who Also, just to the vision to say everything on our watershed contributes to that watershed. Everything that we do here contributes to the health or lack thereof of this ecosystem. And as long as we don't pay attention to that, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot quite literally.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you, too, just in thinking about, like, what what appeals to Barry to me is it's kind of a memory of, like, the way my grandmother grew up. But it's not how I grew up. I was very suburban and, you know, just... Kind of average American uh childhood for you, you grew up in a farming family, and uh, like to me, I feel like reading Wendell Berry is an aspiration, and like, ooh, I want to get there, I want to go and you know grow my own food or whatever for you, it's past, and maybe I mean you talked in your show too about like maybe it's aspiration someday too to go live in a cabin in the woods or something, but like how do you square just the uh, like having grown up in it and then having left it
1: well. As a kid, you know, uh, working in, in my family's enormous garden and, and working with my, my uncles and my grandparents on the, on the family farm at the time. I mean, I was excited that I got paid wages at age 13 or 14 to, to walk beans or, or drive a, a combine or haul stuff around or pick up rocks in the field. That was fun, but. Uh, you know, I wasn't reading Wendell Berry. Nobody was talking about agrarianism or the yeah. or the soil health, and so a lot of it was a drag. You know, I wanted to be with ride my bike to the creek with my friends rather than be working on the after school or on the weekends. And so, so it's funny. I, I mean, I was driven to become an entertainer. I mean, I knew in high school, and then. I, that I wanted to become an actor. And so I got into theater school at the university of Illinois. It was the first time that schooling captured my heart. Like college was the first time that I was passionate and like voracious for this subject matter. I had found my calling. I, I loved it. And, and uh, it took me another five or six years to, to get halfway decent at it. But But I knew that I'd found that like it was the first time that I wanted to like ace every test and be Mm. the top of my class and be the best I could be, and so I was swept away by that passion and that and that turned into a professional life in the theater in Chicago, where I was working in plays. I had a company called the Defiant Theater with my friends. I was building all of our scenery with a couple of the gang and. Uh, I had my own scenery shop. I was doing that professionally in Chicago. Wow. And so I, I was happily and passionately and sometimes drunkenly, uh, <laughs> y- you know, thriving yeah. as a young young man. Like I found what I would love to do and it's perform great works of literature on the stage and also take my pants off to shock people and let them know that I'm not okay with Catholicism and, you know, go, go through this whole thing. And it wasn't until my late, twenties that it began to occur to me, uh, that, that I also might want to live a life of responsibility and, you know, pay attention to things that adults pay attention to, to my family, to, you know, to, to citizenship. This is about when I got those stories and it was part of my sort of awakening where I was like, Oh, right. Mm. (laughs) Beer is great, but in moderation, (laughs) and so it wasn't you know i don't know my my the, my vocation swept me to chicago and then philadelphia and and new york briefly but ultimately los angeles and i've i've never felt like oh no i've made a mistake things to have not gone remotely the way i thought they might or hoped they would they've gone exponentially better in ways that i could never have imagined I mean, the, that role of Ron Swanson, I I never could have dreamed of that, that someone could take the toolbox that is me and and build something that people enjoyed so much. Mm. Uh, you know, if someone had said to me, here's a blank check, What you can play any part you want to, I would have come up with something so much stupider and <laughs> contrived where I was like, okay, I'm a superhero uh, lumberjack who has powers of eating meat, you know, like... I just would have been much less nuanced. It would have been much uh, more solipsistic once again. And so by the time I got to thinking about the question that you've asked, how do I, how do I reconcile my life living in Los Angeles and, and so forth uh, against the Wendell Berry lifestyle? And, and my family, my mom and dad were just visiting here. And uh, Megan, over the pandemic, has become an incredible chef. Her obsession, you know uh when when we suddenly had this time on our hands was cooking and baking. yeah, and so in in defense against that, my obsession has become maintaining my waistline <laughs> and to and together <laughs> we we continue to be a very healthy couple. But so my mom and dad were here, and we were talking a lot about it's it was a new thing to have my mom and dad come stay, and we all had meals together without needing to go to a restaurant. And so it's an it's an ongoing e- equation and my answer is because for, for a while I felt really guilty and like, you know, I always encourage people to garden, but I don't have a garden. Yeah. A- and the reason is I'm not at my house often for up to 6-8 months of the year sometimes. And so I could be a guy who pays someone to have a garden at my, at my house. <laughs> or I could just, you know, try and support the with everybody else proper agriculture uh, from people who do have uh, gardens and, and organic produce operations. The long-winded answer that I'm coming around to is what I realized is I can still flex those values. I can, I can still live my life that way and in my case, I realized that my woodshop is my garden, mm. and my employees are my produce and my relationships and my life. Like those, all of those things are what I tend to, and I yeah. am in, interested in their health for their own sake, but also selfishly because I get to eat the Brussels sprouts that come off of them. Sure, <laughs> and so that's that's the answer. I mean, because you know the the vast majority. I mean. It's a tiny the the number of people who can live in the way that you know that the people that the families in the Port William Fellowship of Wendell Berry's fiction live. The people who live that way are a tiny fraction of the, the national and world population, and so that that question applies to almost everybody. How can yeah. we? How can we lay these values over our very modern consumerist lives? And it's, and it's that. It's, if you're not making your stuff, whatever it is you're making, or you're or responsible for providing any of your own food, know who is responsible. Know where it's coming from. Give a shit about the safety practices. Care about where it's coming from, how much gas it takes, uh, how many fossil fuels are required, etc., do, do your blueberries need to be flown in from Peru? And do you think that's okay or not? And th- I mean, th- for me, that's my, that's my devil As I lo- blueberries are my crack. And so it's, it's a thing, you know, it's like, well, if, if, if we lived purely the way Aldo Leopold would have us live, I would only eat pickles, uh, <laughs> from November to February, you yeah. know, so that's, the, that's what we have to – I think we have to be forgiving uh, of ourselves for uh, – I mean, I've got it down to probably – it's probably once every two years I hit, a, I hit a drive-through for a cheeseburger. And I'm immediately reminded, thankfully, why it'll be another two years because it, it's lost its hold on me and I can recognize the immediate chemistry of like, ah, yes – this fu- the, the endorphins are firing. The, um, the dopamine is flowing and it lasts just minutes. And then you're like, <laughs> Oh, the guy, yes, it's, Im- it's just immediately recognizable as garbage. But you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to beat myself up <laughs> two years down the road where I'm like, Oh my God, that looks so good on the side of the bus because I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a human animal.
0: Yeah. That's what we all are. Um, so just to kind of wrap it all up, um, I, I want to talk briefly just about what's probably on everybody's mind right now is the sensation that became The Last of Us. Like, I was kind of shocked just reading through social media and saying, hey, you got to check out episode three. Like, how much of it did you anticipate? Did you know kind of shooting it or reading the script? Or was it was it as big of a surprise to you just how well received that episode was and, and the character of Bill?
1: Well, thank you, uh I- I'm very grateful to you and the the uh, tsunami of of goodwill that came my way and and the way of the of the entire production around the whole show, but specifically that that episode three, and it really ties into what we're talking about because when I got the script, it's one episode of this you know new HBO show based on this video game that I had never heard of, uh, yeah, and I still have not seen. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm thrilled about all of it, but I have no interest. Uh, Yeah. But I'm so grateful that, that others do (laughs) because look what it made. But um, when I read the script and then, and then asked Megan to read it because it was going to cause some havoc with my calendar. Yeah. So I needed, I needed my, my sensei uh, and bride to, to say, no, you, you are, your instincts are correct. You have to do this. And it's because in this, uh, Weird uh, post-apocalyptic, you know, sort of zombie story where the the world has been ravaged by uh, uh, a predatory fungi. If that's even the correct uh, terminology, yeah. Um, apologies to the, <laughs> to the to the to the gamers if I've cocked it up. But it, in this bleak world, you know, similar to like Cormac McCarthy's *The Road*, yeah, the question hangs in the balance of how do we go on, can we go on, and most importantly, why should we go on? Like, this sucks. Yeah. The house has burned down. Why not just end it all or become nihilists and just, like, you know, th- throw our hands in the air and kill each other and, like, the, the the winner take all? And the answer in that script is because of loving one another. Like, that is the miracle of life. Uh that's the miracle of, of human consciousness is we are able to care about one another and take better care of each other than we are of ourselves. And that's a mystery and it's, it's beautiful. And that script is, is dripping with it. And it's just a gorgeously conceived and written idea uh, by Craig Mazin, who also made the incredible series Chernobyl. Mm. And that's it. I mean every the entire production everybody carried that script around like a like a baby phoenix that had suddenly appeared in our midst that we were like we can't kill this mythical bird. We yeah. have to <laughs> raise this bird so that because everyone is going to benefit from this phoenix. It's a yeah. goddamn phoenix, people. <laughs> and so that was it. I mean that's ultimately that's what I aspire to uh that, that's why I love Mike Schur so much because his writing has these values, and I can I, and i I'm not a a brain or a talent like Mike or Craig, but I'm good at shoveling, and those guys sometimes need somebody to use a shovel in their orchestra mm-hmm. and i and so I'm very glad to run into them and to have access to their writing where I say, ooh. ooh on, honey on page 37 there's a shovel it's a, it's a spade i'm can totally spade like a motherfucker uh you know they need and this guy has to dig up potatoes it's finally my dream role and so you know that's where we're at like i i love when writing like that comes across my plate and i can not screw it up i can get the chance to do it and uh and, and help realize what those beautiful talents and hearts had in mind. It was just a, a gorgeous story about why, whether it's post-apocalyptic or Massachusetts or California today, why should we give a shit? Why should we get out of bed? And it's because we, we should find someone to take care of and take care of them. There's nothing better, there's no greater reward. That is our purpose.
0: All right, Nick Offerman there. Oh, man. I told him afterwards, like, he's like a sensei to me. Like, he is just, I feel totally at ease after hearing him. It feels like things are going to be right with the world, even if it looks really messed up right now. And uh, I really appreciate just the way that he thinks and the people that he's introduced me to by way of his writing and uh, the things that he puts out into the world. Go and see his comedy show. We talked about the beginning there, but it is is amazing. I've seen him twice in person, once in 2019 and uh, once just recently in 2023. And if he's going to be near you, you should go see him. Oklahoma, North Dakota, Maryland, North Carolina, all in May. And if you happen to be in Ireland or the UK, June and July, he's over your way. And he's up in Calgary in August. So lots of opportunities to go see Nick go and do that, will you? Please. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you haven't yet checked out my newsletter, I invite you to do that. Go to heathrasala.com slash newsletter. You can subscribe there for free to get a newsletter in your inbox every Wednesday and every Sunday. You also get the podcast emailed directly to you and I started offering memberships. If you want to become a paying member and help support this podcast, you can do that. And you will get podcast episodes before anybody else. They come out a few days early for members. And I also do some member-exclusive video posts where I take you on all sorts of tours. I uh, recently took uh, the members to the place where I buy my eggs, a local farm, and showed why pasture-raised eggs are just so amazing. I've done a tour of an Amish campground. I've done a tour of a former Howard Johnson's, just uh, some funky, interesting stuff, but I hope you'll check it out. And if you came in here just because of Nick and you like this episode, go back and listen to more. I've got a hundred more, 99 more, I guess. Thank you to everyone who's made a hundred episodes possible. I really appreciate it. And until next
1: time, stay safe.